0: Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Ideas Matter by William Collins. The big ideas of our times discussed by the brightest thinkers. Well, the classic one, of course, is Brian, the Brian Cox drinking what's, game. What's the Brian Cox drinking So game? the Brian Cox drinking game. Uh, it means it's 10.03am, and the editors at William Collins, publishers of stimulating non-fiction for over 200 years, are beginning their first weekly podcast meeting. There's Miles. And it's billions and billions and billions. Tom. He's the Northern and Sagan. Wow. Yeah, that's what I always thought. That's why I like him. Arabella. But
2: the, the drinking game we play with my children, someone has to think of a animal.
1: And Carlos, who is late, which is how the subject turned to drinking games.
2: And the person who says the same thing as the original idea, so if it was tiger, the person who says tiger, gets some water tipped over their head. <laughs> oh, fun. <laughs>
1: Carlos Carlos has arrived, and so the important business of the day can finally begin.
0: To kick us off this week,
1: we have Arabella. So who have you got, Arabella, with you today?
2: Well, to kick off our new podcast, we have a former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, who is joining us to discuss politics, writing memoirs, and the future of the Conservative Party.
3: Hello, this is David Cameron, former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom between 2010 and 2016, and the idea I'd like to discuss is why we write political memoirs and the point of political memoirs.
1: So, Arabella, um, not every day that an editor gets to edit a prime minister, and um, there's obviously a long and august tradition
3: of prime ministers writing memoirs. How, you know, I mean, just being nosy. How's it? How's it been? How did it work?
2: It's been fascinating. Um, He's been Prime Minister of this country. He makes decisions really quickly, which makes (laughs) the process much easier. Um, His ability to absorb a brief and then make decisions upon it has been impressive, which has made dealing with edits easy. It's a complicated book to put together because it has to be both a personal memoir of his life and his time in politics but it is also a historical document. It's going to be studied by uh, students of this period um, for we hope uh, many decades to come and it's important to get across um, the facts and the reasons behind him he- why he made decisions uh, in the way that he did um, and to be fair to the process. So we've spent a long time Getting the balance of all of that right. There's an enormous amount to cover, so the book is long, but it's less long than it was. So that's been an interesting process. What do you leave in? What do you cut? And then dealing with the legal side, because he has been privy to various information and decisions which are still not able to be in the public domain. So navigating that too.
3: And do you think it's kind of one of the more personal accounts? Of being Prime Minister:
2: I do. I mean, Margaret Thatcher's book was famously impersonal, and now at least a generation ago. Um, but since John Major, who wrote wonderfully about his rather exotic childhood, um, and you know Anthony Blair's book was you know, very, very good too. but I think David Cameron's is the most personal so far.:
1: So dear listener. Put your feet up, warm your hands on a hot drink and enjoy this conversation between former Prime Minister David Cameron and his editor Arabella Pike.
2: So David, we're here to talk about why political memoirs matter, why write political memoirs. You've just written a political memoir. Could you tell me a bit about what you think?
3: I think they matter because, of course historians can pour over all the paperwork that gets released over the years, they can reconstruct meetings, they can talk to all the participants, they can go through subject by subject in immense detail and that's very important. But there's one thing that the actual player, the Prime Minister or the Minister can do that the historian perhaps can't, which is explain what they were thinking and how they approached an argument. And so I think they are worthwhile for that reason. I mean, they're always accused of being enormous exercises in self-justification <laughs> and of course Maybe. that has been, of course you want to explain why you were right in this decision or that decision but I think what I've thought to myself going through it and what I feel reading other people's is the best bits are when you're frank about what you were thinking what you were feeling and you're frank and straightforward about what you think worked out and what didn't so that was how I approached it thinking this is the book I can write which is how I felt and then the historians will have a a good go, um, Mm. both now and in the future.
2: How hard did you find it to be honest and not self-justificatory for the sake of it? It is
3: difficult because you want to, if you take something like school reforms or welfare reforms, you've got to write... What was the thinking behind the reforms? How did they go? Did they work? And that becomes quite an essay, quite a long exegesis and facts and figures and all the rest of it. And, you know, as you're writing, you think, well, if I don't do this, perhaps no one else will. (laughs) So there's always going to be a lot of self-justification and some of it will be justified and some of it less so. What I tended to do was plan each chapter thinking about what are the questions I have to answer. And then when I got to the end sort of thinking, well, have we really answered those questions? You know, if you're thinking about Afghanistan or Syria, you know, have I really gone through, should we have been there? Did we get our intervention right? What were the alternatives? And the trouble is you're slightly judge and jury in that conversation, so other people will judge whether you've done it okay. But that, that was my way of sort of thinking about
2: it. Somebody said that being prime minister, you're given a pulpit, you're there directing things, speaking out, leading. Did you find when you were writing the book that somehow, sometimes the pulpit tone came in and you started to preach?
3: Yes, I think you do. You know, When you examine what the powers of a prime minister are, the number 10 down street is far smaller than all the departments. And the power of the prime minister is you are chairing the cabinet, you're making the appointments, but your department is smaller than anybody else's. And one of your powers is your power of persuasion and leadership and speaking both in cabinet, in parliament, but also directly to the public. Yeah, there's a danger when you're writing the book of just sort of sermonizing a bit. <laughs> um, Jess Cuniff, who was my speechwriter in number 10, came to help me with the book. And Danny Finkelstein, who was at the Times and a very good friend of mine, helped to edit some of the chapters. And having said that, some things change not just because laws are changed and regulations are changed, some things change because big arguments are made.
2: You mentioned Danny. I think as a key source for the book was the tapes you recorded whilst you were in Downing Street with Danny. How important were they to the writing process? They were
3: very, very helpful because... I mean, sadly, I'm not a diary keeper. I wish I was. I mean, I think diarists are born and not made. Yeah, Some people are just brilliant at it. I mean, Douglas Hurd kept a wonderful diary. I mean, Harold Macmillan was a great diary keeper. Obviously, you know, Alan Clark, Chips Channon. There have been great diarists in the past. More waspish, perhaps, <laughs> than a fact. But I was not a. Di- I don't want to get out a notebook before I go to bed and jot down my thoughts. I'm, I'm annoyed by that because it would have been brilliant material for a book, and it really would have reminded what you felt every night. But what yeah. I had with Danny was. Every six weeks or so, he would just come and ask me some questions, prompt me, and then the mini-disc would be put in a drawer. And over the years, we built up lots of these, and they were helpful. I got them all transcribed before I started writing the book, or as I started writing the book. And, you know, they were really helpful at taking me back into my thinking at the time frustrations with colleagues, thoughts about cabinet reshuffles, worries about what was happening in Afghanistan or Libya. One of the crucial moments is actually in January 2012, a full two years before the European elections, three years before the general election, is me saying after the treaty veto that happened in December before, look, we are getting to a place where we're going to need a renegotiation and a referendum to sort out Britain's place in Europe. And that was a sort of key moment because it demonstrates how early I was thinking about this issue and how the thinking about it was linked directly to the real problem in Europe, which is the development of the Eurozone and Britain having to find out how we could work with that. So they were useful. They were very annoying to listen to because I was always (laughs) eating packets of crisps and peanuts. (laughs) So the transcription was helpful. But I mean, you always wish you had more because... You go back into the Cabinet Office, which they let you look at all the papers you saw at the time. You try and decipher your scribbles in the margin mm-hmm. of these papers. And sometimes you can remember what you were thinking when you wrote those, and other times, not so much.
2: So, without hindsight. We'll come back to the Europe question in a minute, I'm sure. I haven't heard the tapes, but Danny told me that they're as good as Harold MacBillan's diaries. So, maybe you didn't need the diary.
3: Uh, no, I think that without, why they're not as good is... If you re I don't I think some diarists don't keep a diary every night, but if three or four times a week, I think as Douglas Heard did, you record, you know, the meeting you just had, the thing that you said, so or the gorgeous. thing that you thought, you know, that can be very helpful because memory does play tricks on you in terms of jumbling up times mm. and dates. I remember sending a chapter to my former national security, Deputy National Security Advisor on Afghanistan, he said, well, very good effort, but you've created an entirely fictitious American general. You've, you've taken, <laughs> there was one called Larry someone, and there was one called David someone, and you've, you know, put merged them together. Them, together. Merged <laughs> them. And I really didn't think I had, but Too then... Too many generals probably. You know, minister. so, so uh, and memory trace, tricks on you about about who said what when and the sequencing often you get yeah. wrong because you've remembered it in a certain way so uh, diaries would help I think but as mm. I say you either do them or you don't
2: So sending the chapters out to people who were there did you find they added insight or just extra material?
3: I found, I thought of it as a sort of expert peer review is I think what I called it so I'd write a chapter on the economy and the austerity programme and then Rupert Harrison who was a advisor to George Osborne and, and also to me It was hugely helpful. I'd write a chapter on foreign policy and send it to one of my experts who worked with me. They would correct mistakes. They would remind me of things that fitted into the narrative but weren't there. And, of course, and this is not meant to sound sort of arrogant, but the truth is a prime minister doesn't remember his conversation with everybody, but some of the people you've spoken to remember what you said, because you were the Prime Minister. Yeah, right. And so people sometimes would play back to me things that I'd forgotten about, and that was very helpful. It's not so much many hands make like work, but it's, you know, more minds together make well, a better, better product.
2: And less mistakes.
3: Yes, and there are bound to be mistakes. I mean, I have one of the most meticulous fact-checkers in Jonathan Meakin who worked on Anthony Seldon's excellent books of Blair at 10 and Brown at 10 and Cameron at 10. But even so, you still find that last edit, the last read-through, you spot one final mistake. you got someone as a president rather than a prime minister or vice versa, you know.
2: Someone's age wrong.
3: Yes, a few of those.
2: (laughs) The book, when it was first delivered, was very long and we had to make some reasonably significant cuts hmm. what's the thing you most regret with that we cut from the final um text?
3: i i really enjoyed writing the early years stuff because of course you stop being prime minister and you remember very clearly the political events of the previous five years or decade but you haven't spent a lot of time thinking about your childhood and what influenced you and and what your exact relationship was with your mother and father and all the rest of it, but I really enjoyed sort of getting going on writing about childhood and life at home mm-hmm. and the schools I went to and what happened at Oxford and all the rest of it and and so I, but I wrote too much I sort of you, you, you start rambling on, and some of it 's good and interesting stories and so I, so I regret some of the things we had to take out of that were interesting stories or things that I found amusing, so that that was a bit difficult. A lot of cutting is cutting is better because you know, you one tends to as you're making an argument about yeah, education reform or Europe or whatever, you, you get a bit carried away and overdo it and, and a lot of the tightening makes it much better.
2: The development of arguments in the book, the main one obviously is Europe. You say and record in the book your twenty oh six comment, you know, the Conservative Party's got to stop mm. banging on about Europe. Do you think you should have listened to that more when you got to Downing Street?
3: Well, I wish I'd been able to in some ways, because what I try and really two things I'm trying to show in the book. One is the development of the Europe issue from the time I was an advisor to Norman Lamont in the Treasury, when the exchange rate mechanism, all the way through the European Constitution, the Lisbon Treaty, the failure to have a referendum, coming into power, the Eurozone crisis, the migration crisis. I try to you know, explain in narrative form how this issue developed so that I hope the reader, when we get to the referendum, sort of understands how we've got there. And, of course, you know, it would have been great if in 2010, on becoming prime minister, Europe hadn't loomed larger. I didn't want it to, but the truth is, and I try and explain this, is we were confronted fairly rapidly with a series of big European questions. There was a move to get Britain to bail out eurozone countries like Greece even though we weren't in the eurozone and we were about to be sort of outvoted and made to do that that was I thought it's not a minor question that's a big question there was the question of should we be standing behind eurozone banks and guaranteeing their deposits even though we're not in the eurozone that's a a big question there was this treaty that um, the eurozone countries wanted where they'd be meeting separately from us but talking about things like the single market and financial services that affected us. That was a big thing. So it's certainly true that European demons have sometimes been invented, whether that's straight bananas or euro sausages or what have you. But these were, sometimes by (laughs) Boris, that these were real things. And I wish we hadn't had to spend so much time on them, but we did because there were real problems.
2: And are you happy with the way you set out your stall in the book? The last, what is it? you know, 30% of the book uh, is dominated by well, these I issues. I think
3: that's inevitable. I think if you look at the balance of the book, and this was one of the reasons that we, in the end I did cut the early chapters, is I liked writing about my childhood. I'm proud of the fact I was leader of the opposition for five years, and it's a bloody awful job, and I wanted to explain how difficult it is. But I think you get to about a page 140-something before I'm prime minister, and that seems about the right balance in a yeah. 700-odd-page book. And then again... Yes, the last three chapters are pretty Europe heavy and there's Europe threaded through the book because of what I've just explained. But I hope people find the balance about right. There are whole chapters on our engagement in Afghanistan, on the Arab Spring and Libya, on the poison gas attacks and our failure to do more in Syria, whole chapters on the economic strategy, whole chapters on um, some of the bold reforms we're doing from education reforms to a whole chapter on gay marriage called yeah. Love is Love, which I'm passionate about. So mm. there were other bits, there were some subjects which in the end don't make it because you, you have to sort of have a limit somewhere. But I think there's a reasonable balance.
2: Yeah, I mean, we, we were very concerned about the keeping the page length of the book within a certain limit. Um, but there's an awful lot to cover. You know, there 11 is, and, years and some of subjects, I mean, in. you
3: know, some of the things that, people talk to me a lot about now which might be for instance you know Britain trying to lead the world on dealing with dementia or antimicrobial resistance the fact that antibiotics aren't working you know there's not a huge amount there's a some some some, um, explanation on climate change there could be a lot more and so it's an interesting question what do you put in and what do you leave out you know I found more and more as I was writing it, you know, you try to be accurate, but it's not a history book. It's not a complete collection of every subject. No. If, you, if you did it. it, if you wrote the book according to the amount of time a prime minister spent on the subject, you'd probably have far more on foreign affairs because yeah. you spend about a quarter of your time as prime minister meeting with other presidents and prime ministers and foreign visits and all the rest of it. But I think it would be a pretty boring book if you went there. So, it's, What you leave and what you take out is, it's a bit more impressionistic than... Mm. Historical. It's about trying to paint a picture of what it's like to be prime minister while engaging the reader. You hope.
2: Yeah, it's interesting what you say about the time you spend um, as prime minister being at least quarter of it on foreign affairs. It's a job where you've got bombs and crises coming at you from every single direction. I think it was the Australian rugby manager Eddie Jones, mm. not a rugby, who said that you know people only feel pressure when they don't know what they're doing. Uh, <laughs> yes. Did you? When did you feel the pressure, the worst?
3: Uh, the pressure was definitely at its worst over, you know, committing troops in, in harm's way and the crisis of British and American hostages being beheaded in the desert in Syria and us not able to find find them and stop the people who were doing it, although eventually we, we did. I mean, that was huge pressure because, you know, lives were at stake. I felt a lot of pressure over the Scottish referendum. I was desperately worried we the United Kingdom might not stay together. And then, of course, over the referendum itself, a lot of pressure. I think the problem in writing the book is you can't write an entirely chronological book because it would be too day by day and very muddling. So you separate it out into themes and try and get them chronologically ordered, if that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, exactly. But what you can't get across, although I try by moments, is the life of a prime minister is actually... You, Start the week thinking, right, this is the week I'm going to, you know, agree the budget and the spending strategy and talk about the economy and all the rest of it. But by Monday morning, you've got a foreign policy crisis over here, a domestic political crisis over there, a cabinet resignation happening between now and Tuesday lunchtime. You've probably got stuff going on in your family and personal life as well. And the point is, all these things hit you at once. And there are some examples in the book of how we were dealing with a resurgence of Northern Irish terrorism at the same time as the meltdown of the reactors in Fukushima Mm -hmm. in Japan, at the same time as, I think, another terrorist bomb plot. And all these crises were going on simultaneously. It's hard to get that across. And that's when, I suppose, the Eddie Jones thing comes in, where you're having to cope with a lot of different pressures all at the same time and it's very hard to brief yourself up on all of them simultaneously but that's that's one of the challenges and i think it no prime ministerial memoir quite gets that across no. because it, i'm not saying that's what it's like every day there are more peaceful days when you get on with what you're planning to get on with but a lot of the time it's just the stuff that comes at you
2: yeah sure looking back <coughs> to your time i mean you were one of the first prominent politicians to embrace climate change when you were leader of the opposition what's the proudest achievement I think the,
3: the, the school reforms, which I was very passionate about, and as someone with school age children, you're very focused on how important results are and standards are. And I thought that, um, you know, we had something to build on because the academy programme was, was underway. Uh, Tony Blair had rightly sort of confronted his own party about the need to to reform, and we put rocket boosters under that and also toughened the standards as well as changing the structures. And when I look today, you know, there were schools that were started while I was Prime Minister, some of these free schools, like the West London Free School and and others, that are already, with their first set of GCSEs, only having been going for a few years, are up there amongst the top few hundred independent schools, schools some of which have been going for hundreds of years. So it's an incredibly impressive achievement. And I think um, these reforms are never entirely safe because another party can come along and undo them. But I think there's now such a quantity of good schools in the state sector, whether schools that converted to be academies, whether they were set up as new academies or whether they were one of these free schools which we set up. You know, there's a lot more excellence around mm. and I think it'll be more difficult for future politicians to mess with that mm. uh, by putting, trying to put them all back in the same box. But it's, it's still a concern I have.
2: Yeah. Famously too you led the first coalition government since the Second World War. Can you just tell us a bit about that? How easy was it to get on with the Liberal Democrats?
3: Well, I start the book with... with, I mean, the book goes back to the childhood, but the opening chapter is waking up on the morning after the election in 2010 and realising that the state of the country was such that the best thing to do was embrace a full coalition. And, And so I did something which is not really in the negotiation playbook. You're meant to play your cards close to your chest, wait till the partner comes to you. I went straight out there and said, let's have a you know big, warm, generous open offer to the Liberal Democrats. Let's aim for a full coalition. And I started talking about policies of theirs that we'd be happy to put in place. And this did actually help to make it happen. Mm. Now, the fortunate thing was that Nick Clegg was a very good coalition partner. He was someone I liked and admired and enjoyed working with and it was a thoroughly decent and... Honorable man, but it was there were stresses and strains in the coalition because we were two parties with different outlooks on things, and it took a lot of work keeping the show on the road. And I try and explain that in um, coalition blues and other yeah. <laughs> other chapters because it's a theme that runs through the book. So it was a huge challenge, but one I enjoyed. I mean, I like solving people problems, no, as it correct. were. And I think we, at the centre of it all, we constructed this thing called the quad, which was me and George Osborne and Danny Alexander and Nick Clegg, and it was a way of sort of containing arguments. We'd meet and sometimes have blinding rows, (laughs) and often it would be George and Nick who were the most blinding, as it were, in those rows. And Danny and I were always quite good at the kind of bringing everyone back down and trying to work out, okay, we've had this big disagreement. How do we put? humped it back together again so but it was it was a great challenge and i think a good government you know we did what we said we were going to do we turned the economy around we got the deficit down we create a lot of jobs we ended up the fastest growing economy in the in the g7 people thought the government wouldn't last longer than six months we'd mm. all be at each other's throats but it lasted the full five
0: years yeah. and I'm, I'm very proud of
2: that no, quite right
0: selling a little or a lot
1: And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Um, how do you respond to the, uh, the criticism that you were closer to the Liberal Democrats than you were to your own backbench MPs?
3: Well, I wasn't. And if you listen to the Liberal Democrats, they will always and Nick Clegg will say Cameron was ferocious in defending his corner in the coalition. I think I mean, there's some truth in the criticism in that I knew to make a coalition work that you had from the top to sort of celebrate it and talk about it and explain why it was a good thing. Because if you don't do that, how do you expect your ministers and all the other departments to work with their coalition partners? So I felt I, I had to over-enthuse about it, as I did famously in the Rose Garden. So I think that was the <laughs> right thing to do. But, but I do accept that that created an impression amongst some of my conservative backbench colleagues that I was enjoying it too much, that I'd rather be in coalition than in a conservative-only government. And this leads to a, a problem that I try and describe in the book, which is, you know, my party was 306 MPs. And it's quite difficult to bring together and lead and allow everyone to have their say and end up with a common view with 306 people. The Liberal Democrats were 55 or so MPs. They could have a meeting where almost everybody spoke. And so you could have one of those meetings where you you all bring out your unhappinesses and happinesses and everyone speaks and I used to joke with Nick Clegg what do you do at the end all held hands and (laughs) sing kumbaya but you seem to manage to keep them all together and we I think could have I could have done better they say great leaders have to be great teachers I think I could have done better at trying to explain all the time to my party what we're doing, why we're doing it where we get to in the end to sort of reassure them that I was still a conservative after all
2: no well quite but you've got some persistent troublemakers in the party, so...
3: There might have been some people who were never going to be convinced. Yes. Uh, in fact, probably are people who are never going to be convinced. But we... I, I think it's fair to say that I lost too much of the dressing room by moments. Um, I think there were people who who I perhaps could have kept more on side through this... I think of as a good example in the book about House of Lords reform. I mean, not the most fascinating subject, but... You know, there was a case for the reforming government that we were to say, right, let's reduce the size of the House of Lords. Let's get an elected element in. We're not changing everything. It's a very conservative reform. We keep the life peers. The hereditary peers over time will be be phased out. And we have one lot of elections to give this house more authority. It's a classic conservative, gradualist, evolutionary reform. And I totally failed to persuade enough people in my party that that's really what I was up to. And I put in the book, I think, that this was a good example of where, you know, if you'd had almost weekly discussions about it, allowed everybody to vent, you never would take some people with you because they didn't want to support you or they hated the idea of anyone being elected in the House of Lords. But I think it's an example of where real consultation and continuous education might might have got you there. Part of the problem, though, is Prime Minister, you, you are limited on time. Well, exactly. Um, I was about to make
2: exactly the same but,
3: point. Uh, so, but when you're in office, you have, as I put it, uh, no time to think. And when you're out of office, you've got plenty of time to think. So I sort of look back at that and think, surely there was a way of convincing mm. more people that this wasn't a danger to the Constitution. Mm. It was actually rather a conservative approach.
2: Do you think your lack of ministerial experience before you became Prime Minister had an effect on that? Mm.
3: Uh, so, I, I'd, I'd, I mean, almost certainly... The more experiences you can have before you become prime minister that are relevant, probably the better. But I had been in the Treasury, in the Home Office, very close to the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Home Secretary, seeing how they worked. That was good experience. A leader of the opposition for five years, where every day, okay, you're trying to kill the government and get your point across, but you're also... You have to wake up every morning thinking, well, if I was prime minister, what would I do? It's different. Responsible. So I think there's there's, you know, you, more experience is always good. I think, though, sometimes people who've been a minister for something and then become prime minister, you can almost bring too much of your former job into your new job. The prime minister has to be, you know, across every brief. And the thing about leader, the opposition is you've chaired shadow cabinets you've had to talk about every subject you've had to meet world leaders from all over the globe you've had to make some sense on subjects as diverse as school reform and the environment and foreign policy and economic policy and so it's not that you know everything about everything you certainly don't it's Mm -hmm. not that you have the answer to every question you certainly don't but you've at least had to ask questions about everything so when you sit into the prime minister's seat you've got some previous as it were on every subject
2: I mean, you talk about this in the book and about your growing realisation that as prime minister, you can't just say, yes, question this, do that. That's the decision. Off it goes. You had to drive it through and drive it through. That's a different...
3: And and that's, that's less... I mean, you've read about that before you become prime minister, but it is... That's something you do learn on the job because the British civil service is very effective and impartial and professional. But there can be a slight tendency for discussions to be held and brilliantly curated and then minuted, but then the action not actually to be carried out. <laughs> and to start with this, Prime Minister, you just assume, when well, I've made a decision. Yeah. Obviously, that's going to happen. And, and one or two times, I think there was a celebrated case, which is in the book, about giving overseas aid money to Jamaica to help them modernise their criminal justice system and build a prison, partly so we could get the very large number of jamaicans out of british prisons and back home again where i said "Well, I, I, you know i want this done yeah, this makes right. perfect sense and literally six months later i asked well how's this getting on and nothing had happened <laughs> because you know, the, the officials i think didn't really agree with what i'd said and further work needs to be done minister and there i think ministerial experience is yes, well, is helpful yeah. because i think if you're a forming minister in a an department and you've been trying to drive change you've you've seen how it can get bogged down and I think some of my best ministers, um, actually people like Michael Gove when he was at education, were really good at setting the direction and then realising you're not the chairman, you're also quite a chief executive. You've got to roll up your sleeves and get stuck in and make sure the change actually happens.
2: Yeah, quite. There's a marvellous story in the book about printing Libyan money in the middle of the <laughs> Libyan crisis. Could you tell us that?
3: Well, what it was, was um, as the Libyan crisis began and the revolt against Gaddafi took place, De La Rue, the... Um, company that prints a lot of banknotes told us that they had a uh, a huge order of new banknotes for the Libyan government they were meant to be delivering, but they didn't want to deliver it while the government seemed to be, as we were arguing, completely illegitimate and trying to murder its own people. So we sort of, in, with their encouragement, impounded it. And then it got to the situation, once the the opposition sort of effectively took over the government in Libya, we wanted them to have the money because we wanted them to be able to pay salaries. But, of course, the lawyers at that stage were saying, well, there's an embargo. We can't do anything to break the embargo. And you've got this sort of... The rule of law is vitally important, no more important than, than, than now. But it's sort of really infuriating. that I know the sanctions didn't mean that. Can't we find a way round them? Um, and for a long time, we couldn't. But eventually, I think George comes into a COBRA meeting we've had and says, I put all the effing money on a plane okay. and it's gone. <laughs> and so it's a great relief that... Um, that, uh, so that shows how much you know. The, the Libya chapter, I hope, shows the amount of detail a prime minister has to get into, which the the military uh, commanders um, and top brass didn't always like. I mean, yeah. David Richards always used to say, we- "We've got your intent, prime minister. That's all we need to know. You know, you're the you give us the strategic direction, and we'll do everything else. And that's that's not good enough no, because I if bugger you're
2: off politicians, yes, uh, yes exactly.
3: You don't <laughs> if you're trying to win a conflict. You need, as someone said, you need a long screwdriver. You've got to get into the machine. You've got to be asking the questions all the time. you know. And, and I was asking everything from why is Libyan state television still broadcasting to what's happened to the yeah. banknotes to, you know, what are our forces doing in, in these different parts and how are we linking up the rebels, etc., cetera, et cetera. It's a tremendous job. Um, and the chapter. more I, I did that job, the more I learned that, you know, question everything mm. um, is a good strategy. And I think the best military top brass, don't mind that, because they're across all the detail they want to answer, and as long as you, you're reasonable about it, they it's a good debate to have.
2: Well, quite right. What was the chapter you found the hardest to write in the book?
3: The hardest personally to write was the chapter about Ivan, our first-born son, because I wanted to tell the story because we loved him so much and we were so blessed to have him. But it was painful because, you know, although... The happy memories had sort of started to flood back um, about the good times we'd had together. Once you started writing, I had to remember, you know, the hospital visits, the seizures, the difficulties, the medicines. And then I couldn't finish the chapter without writing what happened at the very end when he tragically died. And I think I've I've tried to sort of block that out of my mind so much uh, that I, returning to it was sort of painful, but but I think sort of cathartic, because you have to you know, maybe it has helped me sort of come to terms with everything. But I wanted to write it because I thought for other parents with disabled children and for people who want to understand what it's like to have a disabled child writing that is, I hope um, helpful. I was very struck that when we had Ivan, and we always used to wheel him around and go and sit in the Goldbourne Road and drink coffee or take him down to the beach in Devon or whatever we were doing. And people would sometimes say it's so lovely that you take your child around with you everywhere. And I thought that's extraordinary. Of course you would. He's my, my son. But I think attitudes to disability have changed a lot. And in the past, perhaps people would have hidden disabled children away. And that made me think that if you're in the public eye and you have a disabled child, you can sort of do things that help make a difference. And so that that was part of the... So that was the hardest chapter to write emotionally. The hardest... There were lots of hard chapters to write because they were just so difficult to get all the detail and arguments together and really work out what you felt about everything. And some of the Europe chapters, particularly the, the referendum campaign chapter, was very difficult because... Uh, you know, I'm still battling with could, what could we have done differently? Mm. How could we brought the campaign to work better? And I wanted to. That was difficult. actually the Leveson chapter, because it's quite complicated and it's such a mess yeah. about this question of press regulation. That that was hard. Yeah. So lots of them were were hard, like like that.
2: A lot of people here have re- um, responded very positively to your chapter on Sarkozy's intervention when your father was taken so ill and very sadly died in France.
3: Yes, that was it was a lovely thing because, you know, it, it's absolutely true that I woke up, my mother ringing. I remember absolutely, you know, what side of the bed I was on, as it were. The phone rings and it's my mum saying Dad's been taken ill. It's a Wednesday morning. It's Minister's Questions Day. But I rush down to City Airport, meet up with the rest of the family to get on the plane to go and see him, you know, tell the office I can't do Minister's Questions. And then when we get to the airport, my mother rings and says, I think things have got better And so I wasn't going to get on the plane. I get back in the car, head back towards Downing Street. And then Sarkozy comes on the phone and says that he had spoken to the doctor who was looking after my dad, who said, really, was serious, and I must get back on the plane. And he said, don't worry, I will get you to your father. And as we landed in the south of France at Nice Airport, I think it was, there was a helicopter which picked us up and flew us to the roof of the hospital my father was in. And so I saw him before he died. So I'll never forget that. That was a chapter. It was, I think, I put it together with the birth of Florence and the death of my father, and it's about life in Downing Street and very personal. And I I wrote that actually. I was sitting in a hotel in Las Vegas, and sort of, oh, you would have thought, well, you'd want to be out on the Strip or going to do this (laughs) or whatever. Actually, if you're somewhere where you don't really want to go out, but you're stuck in a hotel room, it's actually quite a good. It was a really good place to write a very personal chapter, and it was one of the ones I used that software where you talk into the computer and the words come out and (laughs) so I mean I tried lots of some writers do the same thing all the time I had to keep moving and varying Mm. and I I, for some it really was if you plan it out what you're going to say roughly like an essay plan and then read it into the microphone and it's a bit of software called Dragon Dictate or something and a lot of it comes out quite jumbled, but it does work. And then you spend hours editing it. But if you want to get a sort of stream of how you felt and what you thought, suddenly to have your fingers away from the typewriter and just to be speaking, it was, it, yeah. it, and I, so I always liked that chapter. Yeah. I then, I think I sent it to Samantha and she made it much more human and better. I thought I thought I'd done a really good job. <laughs> and then she said, no, 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 there are far better points to include. It was one of the chapters she read in advance and, and did a great job yeah. with, actually.
2: How did you find balancing the personal and the political in the overall?
3: It's sort of, you. you just have to sort of judge whether you're getting too light or too heavy, was the way I thought about it. My plan was sort of vaguely chronological, but then themes, whether it was foreign policy or economy or some personal stuff, and try to make them so that they didn't... Get out of chronological order, but they were thematic. Yeah. And then what you have to do is you suddenly find, oh no, we've got three very heavy foreign policy chapters in a row, and that's going to lose the reader. So you have to try and find a way of yeah. juggling light things round without losing, without getting the chronology wrong.
2: Yeah, light and shade.
3: And so that was just a what bit was of juggling, really.
2: Yeah, and you know, in in other political memoirs that you've read, I mean, do you sometimes do you think that people have got that balance right? The what's the role of the personal? Uh, I think it depends
3: whether you want to read something that you hope people will read in one sort of narrative go or whether you want people to dip in and out. I mean, actually, one of my favorite political memoirs is Nigel Lawson's, where he says in the introduction, you know, you can read this a la carte. You can pick and choose the bits Mm. you want to rather than read the whole thing. I was so fascinated by economic policy that I read the whole thing and thought it was brilliant, although as someone once said that the the three words that appear more than anything else are Margaret reluctantly agreed. <laughs> um, but I can see that he wrote the book with some quite heavy chapters on, you know, monetary targeting and whatever for some people to skip. I'm trying to write a book that I think you can read the whole thing without doing that. I also sort of set a rule, no footnotes, yeah. because I think footnotes, I mean, they can be very important in history books, but It is sometimes a way of saying, actually, this is incredibly complicated, a bit dull. Let's shove it in a footnote, but it's there, if anyone... And I think that's a bit of a cop-out. Your job, I think, as a former Prime Minister, is to try and make the subjects readable and easy enough to to whack into the main um, text. Look, I've read everybody's biographies because I'm a sort of political junkie. Um, And the odd thing is I like almost all of them, even though they're (laughs) very different. Um, But some you get this, you hear the voice very yeah. strongly. I thought John Majors was quite like the parts of Tony Blair's incredibly readable and you absolutely feel he's talking to you about mistakes he made or, or what have you. Then there are some beautiful writers. I, Dennis Healy wrote a book I think, When Shrimps went, Learned yeah. to Whistle I yeah. think, which is yeah. just, you know brilliant raconteur and, and, and all the rest of it. But I sort of like, I've never met a biography I didn't really like because yeah. I'm, I'm interested. Yeah, yeah, sure. But So I, I went I asked advice from people like Anthony Seldon and William Hague and Ed Victor, who started my agent, mm. who gave me lots of advice. But they sort of said, you have to work out which biographies you've liked. And I mm. sort of said, well, I'd rather like all of them. And yeah. that wasn't good enough. You have to go back then and remember what it was you, you Did you, you have liked. somebody
2: very particularly in mind that you were writing for?
3: That's a very good question. I didn't. I suppose... I, I, I didn't have, a, like, a person... William Hagel, as you say to me, when he went on the television, he, he often was thinking of a particular person sitting at home watching on the television so he could really think through the camera and out the other end. I suppose what I was thinking is someone who was interested in politics but who wanted to know more about what it was like. Yeah. So that's your sort of audience. But the truth is I think you you do care in terms of how it's perceived about some of the people you've been dealing with. You know, you've been interviewed endlessly by the Nick Robinsons or Tom Bradbys or Laura Koonsbergs, and you've been arguing about politics with the uh, John Rentals and the, you know, columnists. You sort of, you do, the Fraser Nelsons, you sort of care, these are people I've been doing battle with. Yeah. And if they turn around and say... Well, you haven't really answered the questions, or it's not a fair and honest attempt. You want them to say, no, I still don't agree with you, but this is a reasonable effort at explaining yes. what you're trying to do. Yes. I suppose so. You're writing for someone who's an interested reader, but I think you know you're going to be judged by people that you've been sparring with for years, and you hope you, they think you've done a reasonable job. Yeah.
2: So, political memoirs must have a very strong influence over legacy. Do you think your book will help shape? your legacy? I mean,
3: I hope so. I think um, that's why I think the thematic chapters are so important, because some of the areas where I hope you know, the governments I led will be remembered for good things. I mean, the economic programme, there are a couple of very strong economically based chapters about the decisions we made and what happened and what the results and all the rest of it. The gay marriage chapter, self-contained, the chapter about my passion for overseas aid and international development and the fact that we were the first government that really kept its promise to the poorest in the world by, by meeting the point seven percent I hope these are chapters that people with an interest in those subjects can can see it was a thought through plan and it delivered. But in the end, you know, you, your legacy is determined by others and how you're, yeah. you're written about. But I hope people will see this as a, a reasonable attempt to lay out what I was trying to do and what got done and what didn't get done, yeah. across these, um, particularly the 11 years of leading the Conservative
2: Party. Yeah. And what's next? What's next for the country and what's next for you?
3: Well, next for the country, I very much hope we end this, this period of hiatus. It's been difficult publishing a book while we're in this bulk of neither, we've had the referendum but we haven't left and we've spent three years, you know, stuck, partly because Parliament didn't vote for Theresa May's deal, although she had delivered a form of, of Brexit that the country had asked for. So I hope, first thing, is we get out of this hiatus, the best way out is for Boris Johnson to negotiate a deal, for that deal to come back to Parliament, for Parliament to pass it, and for there to be an agreed method of exit. And it's still not the path I wish we'd taken, but nonetheless, as the world's sixth-largest economy, we can make it work as the the neighbour, the friend, the partner of the EU with an agreed uh, exit. So that's, that's what I hope will happen. If it doesn't, we can't go on being stuck, so we can't rule out general elections or even second referendums if a deal can't get through. So I hope that's what happens there. For me, I'm doing a mixture of work on uh, issues I care a lot about, like dementia, where I'm president of Alzheimer's Research UK. I still back very strongly as president of the Patrons My National Citizen Service programme, which one in six 16 year olds are doing, we're doing this summer. I'm working for a number of tech businesses because tech, I think, is a great area for the UK that we boosted a lot in in government. And I'm trying to do uh, more family things as Samantha, my wife, has (laughs) started a fashion business and is working unbelievably hard. I mean, it is, you know, you're you're only as good as your last collection and all the rest of it. And they keep coming um, and coming. But I'm sure now I've done the book, there'll be room to do some more things. And I think the some of the issues I was passionate about in government whether it's the school reform and the establishment of new schools whether it's what we do for some of the poorest in our world whether it's issues around climate and oceans i work with john kerry on on that there's plenty more for for me to do so um it will be a developing story
2: very good thank you very much
1: thank you that was david cameron in conversation with arabella pike Our programme today was brought to you by William Collins, an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers, and was produced by Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. People who helped put this episode together are Sarah Miles, Tara Al-Azawi and Jack Chalmers. Share your thoughts on this podcast by emailing ideasmatter at harpercollins.co.uk or on social at wmcollinsbooks. You can buy For the Record as a hardback audiobook or ebook, where David Cameron dives even deeper into the ideas discussed this week. Thank you for listening. Uh, keep an eye out for the first chapter from the audiobook of For the Record, which will appear in this feed on Friday. And we'll meet you back here next week when we'll be talking with Bella Mackey about how running saved her life.
0: So for me,
2: I did that initial run to kind of probably just try and slough off a bit of the physical anxiety mm. and found something that worked and stuck with that. But when I asked people, in, you know, in the book, what do they do to kind of mitigate depression and, and worry? There were just endless different answers, you know, from boxing to knitting to cooking. One guy said he cooks. he cooked... Different types of chicken recipes every night until he wasn't sad anymore. Mm. And I think it took literally like 60 days. Amazing.
1: To hear that episode first, don't forget to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on Acast. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.